Let's pray. pray. Father, again, I, we just come to you now in the name of Jesus, and I just ask for your presence and ask for your spirit to guide as this final session of today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can you hear me? It's tough because my voice is going and uh, I don't know what the problem is. I want to start out with these verses, famous verses in um, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. And it's basically Paul is talking about the resurrection. And basically in those verses he's just saying that if Christ is not raised from the dead then our faith is in vain. And we of all people are most miserable. And, and in other words, in these verses he really, he's really emphatic about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, he's saying everything else is in vain. Our faith is in vain. And there's no ambivalence here. There's no ambivalence in Paul. There's none of this, you know, uh, you know, he hasn't caught the spirit of our age where it's, you know, well, you believe what you want or whatever. For Paul, it's clear cut. You're trying to work on the sound? You know, there's no middle ground here. Either Christ was raised from the dead or he wasn't. Okay, if he wasn't, our faith is a lie, we're living a lie, everything is in vain. No middle ground here. And it's, it's interesting too that Paul is talking about this, Paul is talking about this with this big emphasis on the, on the resurrection. This is even after the death of Jesus. Even with the death of Jesus, Paul is adamant about the importance of the resurrection. It's almost like as if Christ's death, and as, and as adamant as he is about Christ's death, without the resurrection, Christ's death is, is meaningless. So it seems very clear that when I read my Bible that the resurrection of Jesus is crucial to the Christian faith. It's part of the message of the cross. In a sense, the cross without the resurrection Paul saying in First Corinthians, is useless. Is useless. So in other words, if he wasn't resurrected from the dead, everything is in vain. And so, you know, it's not that big of a deal in one so it happened to be you. I mean, for the Romans to crucify somebody, Romans to crucify a Jew, was, you know, no big deal back then. They crucified lots of them. As I said, it was a big deal if you happened to be the one being crucified, but you know, in the span of things, but it's the resurrection of the dead from Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. And as no matter how much emphasis Paul has on the gospel and Christ's death and justification by faith and salvation by faith alone, those verses in Corinthians, if the dead aren't resurrected, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, we aren't resurrected, and our faith is matia, I believe, is the Greek word. It's in vain. It's meaningless. And that's pretty heavy. Sit there and say, Christ's death ultimately is meaningless for us if there wasn't the resurrection of the dead. So I guess the question is, what evidence do we really have, though, for the resurrection of Jesus? 
I mean, why do we believe it? As I say, you know, it's one thing for the believe the Romans crucify a Jew. I mean, you know, they crucified lots of Jews. But for someone to be resurrected from the dead, and I think, of course, you say the first re answer is, well, we believe it because it's in the scriptures. Okay, well, for a lot of people, that's just not good enough. That's not good enough. And, uh, and so... Do we have any historical evidence? What is the evidence that we have to buttress our faith? Because, you know, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. And I, I believe that faith could be, it's not a blind faith. I have to live by faith. I have to live by faith in a lot of things. You'd be surprised as to how many things you really have to take on faith, how little we know. And my Christian faith, my Christian belief is no exception, but it's not a blind faith. I have some very, very good reasons for believing in the things that I believe in. Are they foolproof? If they were foolproof, then I wouldn't need faith. You know what I'm saying? They're the, but not, I told you, if you heard earlier, you need faith. Two plus two equals four is built on certain assumptions that ultimately you cannot prove. Ultimately, you've got to take on faith. This was the work of a great a mathematician in the 20th century named Kurt Gödel. He completely kicked out the entire foundations of mathematics, which people once believed was the absolute certain truth. And that got kicked out. So if you're going to kick out the foundations of math, you know, it's, if you've got to take math on faith, then you know, things about God, you know, or could, you know, it's not such a big stretch. But anyway... I want to talk about some of the reasons for the resurrection of Jesus and the evidence for the resurrection because I never really thought about it until I got into it. Then I thought, wow, wow, that's powerful. And I want to begin with a story from C.S. Lewis. Now, I am not, I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan. When C.S. Lewis is good, he's good. He, I mean, screw tape letters or the closest thing I've ever seen to inspiration outside of real inspiration. Screw tape is unbelievable good. And uh, when he's good, he's good. When he's bad, he's atrocious. But anyway, but anyway, he told a story. He told a story about from his agnostic days. He was teaching at Cambridge, classics, and he was in the room with a bunch of the teachers other classics professors. And they're probably sitting around between classes, you know, having a smoke and drinking some coffee and chatting. And one of the professors says to him, he says to him something to the effect of, well, CS old chap, you know, there really is an incredible amount of historical evidence to back up the resurrection of Jesus Christ three days after his death. And then the man just dropped it. Just dropped it. He said, you know, there's a lot of evidence. He just dropped it. You know, and, and, it was, and he dropped it as if he were talking about the latest cricket match, you know, or something. He went on his merry way. It would almost be like you're with someone, you're eating dinner with someone, and he says, oh, you know, th last night three aliens came down in a UFO and snatched up my dog. Uh, pass the saw, please. <laughs> you know? I mean, the guy said this, the guy said the thing, and then he just dropped the subject. Now, C.S. Lewis sat there, 
telling the story. I believe this was in his book, Surprised by Joy, his conversion story. That, if I remember, that was a pretty good book. Pretty good book, too. But anyway, he's thinking about this. And he's thinking about this, you know, and I like this because I like this logical thinking. I like the logic of his thinking here. He says, well, you know, he started thinking about the implications. I mean, if somebody were indeed raised three days after they died, that would be pretty incredible. He said it would, be, it would have rather mind-blowing implications. Considering, you know, that all our modern science and everything was science, we, we can't do that. You know, we can't do that. I mean, it would be, it would be, I dare say, it would be a miracle. And if it's a miracle, then if, you ha if you're a humanist, if you're an atheist, if you have this a priori commitment to materialism, you know, the universe is all that there is, Carl Sagan, you know, and in other words, if you have this view of the world, and then, there, and then somebody who is dead for three days was raised from the dead and came back to life, it would be a miracle. It would be something outside the parameters of natural law. And it would mean that, that there was a reality greater, greater than natural law. And anyway, that was the logic of his thinking. And then, long story short, C.S. Lewis became C.S. Lewis that we know and know about, that, that got him started on his quest. So I guess the question is, what is, though, the historical resurrection, the evidence that we have? It was funny, we were just talking here about reading novels and reading fiction here. I'm going to talk about the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky. Maybe you haven't read him, maybe you, you probably know the name. You ought to at least know the name. And Dostoevsky one of his greatest novels was called Crime and Punishment. And he deals with all sorts of questions about God and morals and the meaning of life and, and so on. And uh, I'm not going to recommend here, not at GYC, to read it. But uh, anyway, but suppose, suppose Dostoevsky, even though it was based on a true story, it was based on a true story of a murder of an old woman. An old woman was murdered. Suppose Dostoevsky insisted that the story itself, all the characters, all their thoughts, their dreams, because it was a psychological novel, he goes into their mind. Suppose he insisted that all these story, the story, every emotion, every character, the dialogues, everything, weren't just fictitious, but portrayed, but portrayed exactly what happened, line by line. The murder, the murder of Alina Iovana, Raskolnikov's meeting with Marmoladov, his inner turmoil after the crime, his encounter with the magistrate Perfery, even Raskolnikov, Rodion Ramonovich Raskolnikov was the murderer. Even his dreams. Suppose he, had, he insisted that these were all real with nothing made up. Everything exactly happened as he said. He insisted it was true. I mean, you'd think 
Fedor needed to spend a little more time at the spa and a little less time with the books and so on. He would need to, you know, air out a little bit, okay? And suppose, too, that Dostoevsky was so insistent that it was true that he would, be, he would face vilification, he would face jail, he would face beating, and he would even face death, insisting that these were all true, that this wasn't fiction, that it really happened. And not only that Dostoevsky himself, but suppose that his brother and his wife and his publisher all insisted that, yes, nothing was fictitious in the book, but everything happened as written exactly in Crime and Punishment. I mean, we tend to think that the people would be crazy. But, you know, but how could, you know, all four insane people keep their thoughts together so well on this idea? Okay, you know, there'd have to be something else going on here. You know, why would they insist that this would be true? Well, but the fact of the matter is, is that Dostoevsky and his wife and his brother and his publisher, none of them ever insisted that the book was true. As I said, it was based on a true story, but he just made up the rest. But now let's shift over to the Gospels. Centuries earlier, the writers of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all insisted on something a lot more implausible than Dostoevsky's novel being real. All insisted on the resurrection of Jesus after his death. You know, the gospel writers, some tell stories that others don't, but all of them, all of them talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some people flat out, right off the bat, reject the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. It's amazing, too, how many professed Christians will reject the idea of a literal resurrection of Jesus, believe it or not. Okay, there's some professed Christians that do that. But they reject it, so what do they do? They say it's craziness. They say it's the product of a sick mind, a mind full of hallucinations and craziness and so forth. I mean, what else could explain the belief that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay? Now, that might be a reasonable assumption if only one person were making it, okay? You know, it's one thing, you know, for, you know, for one person to make the claim, but in this case, all four were making the claim. It's one thing for all, and, and then, okay, it's one thing for all four to be crazy, but for all four to be crazy in the same way? Have you ever tried to have an intelligent conversation with, with so I don't want to make light of it, with somebody with real mental illness or somebody who's having hallucinations or paranoid or schizophrenic? I mean, it's difficult enough trying to keep a conversation, a logical conversation with one person who's whacked out, who's really messed up and so on. You know, something will jump from one thought to another to another. You can barely, you know, you keep up. But then how could each man, each in his own personal insanity, all come up with the same delusion, the same bizarre idea? 
Because as I said, if it was one person said it, you could say, okay, if you want to, that way you'd say the guy's a nutcase. But you got four people, all four saying the same thing. So to sit there and say that all four were crazy, and all four were crazy in the same way, really isn't a logical, rational explanation for it. I mean, I, I don't know how any logical person could, could buy into that. So, okay, so you got to reject that hypothesis. you got to reject the hypothesis that all four were crazy. Well, what's the next logical thing? It would seem that the most logical thing would be that all four got together and conspired and conspired to make up the story of the resurrection of Jesus. That's certainly a lot more reasonable than that all four were crazy. Okay, I mean, pretty much I think we could write off their four crazy, okay? But it's a lot more sensible to say, hey, they got together and they said, let's, let's make up the story that Jesus rose from the dead. Nevertheless, that that view too comes heavy laden with some big problems. And the biggest problem that, that the conspiracy theory has is the motive. What motive would these men have for making up the resurrection of Jesus? Money? Power? Prestige? Please, everything we know about these men, everything we know about these men teaches us that far from gaining worldly power, from gaining money or for gaining worldly prestige, at least in their time, these men lost everything on account of their belief in Jesus. Shunned by their own people, rejected by religious leaders, and mercilessly, mercilessly persecuted by just about everyone. You know, they never gained really worldly power, never gained worldly influence, or never gained really any money, as far as we know, as a result of the belief in the resurrection. On the contrary, they lost everything. Everything on their belief in the resurrection. So why fabricate a story? Why make up a story that would basically cause you to lose everything and everything you would think the motives to make it up for? Okay? So that's a problem. Now, some people realizing that this is a problem, though, have argued, this is their argument, they argued that though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John conspired in hopes of personal advantage, things went away with their plans. Things went awry. But because with, they had already committed to the resurrection, they had no choice but to keep on promoting it. Basically, they wanted to save faith. They had all, whatever plans they had, whatever great plans they had for power, prestige, it didn't work. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus was nothing but a face-saving device, you know, by those whose machinations had failed them. That whatever plan they had, whatever plan they had for religion they were going to start and the hopes they had through the resurrection didn't come through, but they thought, well, 
we said it, we better stick with it, you know, and it's better than just keep making, we'll make it up rather than face the humility, you know, the humiliation. Well, that's logical, except for one problem. The Gospels were not written until many years after the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, some think that 20 years, 30 years, maybe even more from the time it happened till the Gospels were written. So if the apostles had hoped that though their fabricated story of Jesus' resurrection, that they, that they were going to get richer, powerful, or whatever, they certainly learned early on that that wasn't going to happen. You know, things, you know, so right, they had a bad, they faced persecution, hatred, and rejection from the start. But why then, decades later, when they could have faded into the woodwork? You know, you didn't Google people back then. You know, it wasn't Facebook. They could have faded into the woodwork. They could have calmly disappeared, and they could have calmly just dropped the whole project and moved away and gone on about their business, and nobody would have known diddly squat. And yet, as it was decades after when they had plenty of time to disassociate themselves from Jesus, from the gospel, from their failed story of the resurrection, why decades later, even with all the persecution, did they cling to it anyway at such a cost to themselves? Okay. In short, the conspiracy theory doesn't really make any sense. Okay, so the, the, the hallucination, the crazy theory doesn't work. The conspiracy theory doesn't work. I mean, what makes the most sense if you start putting the pieces together is that the resurrection did happen. This alone gives the best explanation for why these men endured years of privation Turmoil, persecution, jail, and on and on and on. I mean, would Dostoevsky suffer jail, exile, even defense and death in defense of a story he made up? Okay, well, why would these guys do the same thing for decades after? They ultimately, they lost their life. Are they going to do it for something they made up? It does not make sense. The only thing that really makes sense is that they truly believed in what they wrote about. Now, there's a lot of internal evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as well. What caused a scared, disheartened group of people who had suddenly lost their leader to suddenly and boldly proclaim the idea of Jesus as the Messiah, you know, and as a leader who rose from the dead? Because if you go back and you study the idea right at that time of a Messiah rising from the dead wasn't a common belief in Judaism back then. It wasn't a common belief back then. And yet, you know, only later, you know, as you start studying the prophecies. But they ultimately proclaimed right after this that the Messiah would rise from the dead. This wasn't a common belief back then. You know, and, and, and so suddenly they lose their leader and the next thing they know they proclaim him as risen from the dead and suddenly they're out boldly proclaiming belief in Jesus when three days before their leader had been crucified and you know, the Bible says they all scattered and fled.
you know. Why would they have done that unless he rose from the dead as they said? And then here's the other thing too. When you read the story of the resurrection, you read the gospel stories, put yourself in the position of these men. Suppose you were trying to make up a religion. You wanted to make up a religion. You wanted to be some of the leaders of the religion. And you were writing the story. I mean, when you read the gospel accounts, why would these men paint themselves in, let's, let's say, less than flattering light? I mean, when you read the stories... They paint themselves in a very unflattering light, you know, talking about all the mistakes they made and the disbelief and their fleeing and their abandoning, you know, and so on. I mean, if they were making up a religion and they were faking this stuff, why would they, you know, you know what I'm saying? Can you see the point here? Why paint, you would want to go out of your way to, to, to frame it in a, you know, to make yourself look good and to make everybody look good instead they talked about all their flaws, all the mistakes, all the things that they did wrong. Not a very rational thing to do if they were making up the story. Okay? Then, too, when you read the Gospels, considering the lower status of women in the Bible at that time, it really, again, a lot of people don't understand from our perspective how important of a point this is. Why did they have women? Again, from our perspective today, this sounds terrible, but back then, from their perspective, they were making this up to have women be the first ones at the tomb for Jesus to appear first to women, for women to announce you know, the resurrection and so on, first ones to discover the tomb. It just doesn't make sense in that culture, in that society for people who were making up, making up a story. They wouldn't have done it that way. They wouldn't have done it. And then, too, there are some small discrepancies in the accounts of the stories between them, minor things. And far from disproving the story, I think it adds credence to it. Because it shows that, okay, they didn't get together and let's, can't, let's make this story up. They each told the story as the Spirit convicted them, as they remembered, and so on. It wasn't like they got together in some kind of conspiracy and said, let's make sure all our points match out exactly. Okay, you don't have that. So far from disproving it, I think that's evidence more towards the fact that it, it happened as they said. Then you read in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And listen to what Paul says about the resurrection of Jesus. Because I think this is fascinating. This is fascinating to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and then he says, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. 
After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. And then what does Paul say? He was seen of 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now think about that for a minute. What is he saying there? He's saying again, and he was seen of Cephas, and of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain alive unto the present, but some have fallen asleep. What is he doing there? He's almost saying, hey, look, don't take my word for it. Okay? There are hundreds and hundreds of people who've seen them, and they're still alive. Go check them out. Ask them. Can you see the point here? He'd say, well, all they all saw, but they're all dead. You know, they saw they're all gone. He's saying, no, hundreds and hundreds have seen them. Some have dead, but many of them are still alive. Go to them and ask them. I mean, he doesn't come right out here and say it, but that's the implication. Go to them and ask them about the resurrected Jesus. Now, if Paul hadn't met Jesus, if this was just something fabricated, why in the world would he do that? Why in the world would he you know, take such a chance on something like that? Instead, he says, it's almost like he's saying, go ahead, ask him yourself. That's not something that somebody would do if they were, you know, making up a story. It's something I think somebody would do who knew it was true, believed it was true, and wanted to convince you that it was true. And I think, too, the other thing that's interesting, too, go back and read. You go back and you read the gospel, the gospel stories. And every last one of them, it's not what they say that's striking, it's what they don't say that's so striking. You don't find in any of the Gospels, in any of the accounts of the resurrection, you don't find them giving any kind of theology of the resurrection, do you? Okay, again, think about it. If you were faking this, you were making it up. You wanted people to believe it for whatever, because you wanted to start a religion. And you're basing so much on the resurrection of Jesus. You're basing so much on the resurrection, so much weighs on this. And yet, all they do is describe it. They say, Jesus rose, he appeared, he ate fish, he did that, he did this, he did a few other things. And in there, there is no theology in the Gospels at all on the resurrection of Jesus. And that's rather strange if you think about it. That's rather strange if you think about it because if they were making this up for whatever reason, for whatever reason they were making it up because they wanted to start a new religion and they wanted you to believe it, why was there no 
None of them gave any kind of theology of what it means. They just told the story of the resurrection of Jesus. How do you make sense of that if they were making it up? Can you see the point there? Can you see the point? Now, none of this, none of this evidence, and there's, and there's even more to it. You could do some reading on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus was resurrected in the sense of proof. The word proof is a very, very, I think it's probably, I've read too much philosophy to try to prove anything is a, because it's, it's very important, especially when you get in the area of science. I mean, if, so, you know, this philosophy of science, I mean, if most scientists, they were honest, they would say science doesn't really prove anything. But none of this proves the resurrection of Jesus. But what it does prove is that the claim of Christ's resurrection is very, very powerful, very, very plausible, and that those of us who believe in it, we have very good reasons for believing it. I mean, if you go through it and think about it, it's almost like the same thing I said with Ellen White. I've gone through with Ellen White, in and out, upside down, every which way, every angle I could look at, and the only thing that makes real sense to me is the woman had the prophetic gift, okay? I mean, I've gone through all the other angles, and it just doesn't fly. It just doesn't make sense. That makes the most sense. And if you look at all the other angles here, all the other ways... The, whole, the, 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 the crazy hallucination thing doesn't work. The conspiracy thing doesn't work. You know, look at some of the internal evidence. You know, what, you know, what, what else can you explain it? How can you explain what, you know, they, one minute they're scared to death, they're frightened, they're hiding, their leader was crucified. Three days later, they're out boldly proclaiming Jesus as the risen Messiah, which again was a very strange idea at the time that wasn't common belief then that the Messiah would rise. In fact, you know what was interesting? What was interesting, I don't know if many of you follow, there's these Orthodox Jews in New York. They're called the Lubavitch. And they had the rabbi, Rebbe Menachem Schneerson, was the chief rabbi, was the head of their rabbi. And many of them believed he was the Messiah. And you'd go up into New York and you'd see these signs, Moshiach now. Moshiach was a Yiddish word for Messiah. Moshiach now. And they thought that Schneerson was the Messiah. Well, he had, what did he do? He upped and he died on him. He died on him about 10 years ago. Well, you'd think that would have, that would have, you know, messed them all up. But then you know what happened? You know what happened? These Orthodox, we're talking Lubavitch. The Lubavitch started to say, hey, if you study the prophecies, the Messiah is going to be resurrected, okay? And it drove the rest of the Jews 
crazy because they said for 2,000 years we've been fighting the Christians on this idea of a resurrected Messiah. We've been fighting the Christians on a resurrected Messiah. And now you got this ultra-Orthodox sect. These all, I mean, we're talking the black hats here. We're talking the kind like, you know, that, that we're talking hardcore Orthodox. Williamsburg, Virginia. I mean, Williamsburg, Virginia. What am I out of my mind? Williamsburg, New York. <laughs> I've been living in the South too long. Williamsburg, New York. I mean, that's the whole Lubavitch. That's their headquarters, and that's where Schneerson was. And there were even rumors that they had drilled holes in his coffin to give him air, you know, to breathe, and so on. But again, but the point is, for 2,000 years, the Jews would argue there's no thing as, you know, the resurrected Messiah, resurrected Messiah. And, and, and in the time of Jesus, it wasn't a common belief that the Messiah would be resurrected. And then all of a sudden, for these disciples to suddenly claim a resurrected Messiah wasn't something, in other words, it wasn't something that they were common, that was commonly expected. So they didn't tap into a common sentiment, which everybody was expecting it. It went really against the sentiment of the time. And yet for them to proclaim it, was something rather radical, something different. It's not something that makes a lick of sense. Had they made it up, had they not truly believed it. And as I said, it wasn't until the death of Menachem Schneerson about 10 years ago could you get any Jews at all to even admit about the idea of the Messiah being resurrected. And as I said, it caused... It caused a minor, a minor furor in Judaism because they said you've handed, you've handed these people, these missionaries, this, this, this stuff that we've been fighting with them on for, for, for you know, 2,000 years almost. Anyway, the point, the point all I wanted to say on all this, I mean, again, as I said, it was common for the Romans to crucify people. They did it all the time to crucify Jews. You read about the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. They said you couldn't walk between the crosses. You couldn't, they were trapped in the city. They were starving. They were dying in a famine. They tried to escape. The Romans would catch them and crucify them. And they said the whole walls outside Jerusalem, you couldn't walk between them because there were so many people hanging there. Can you imagine the carnage? But then, so there's this one crucified, but then he's resurrected. And that makes all the difference in the world. And so as I, the point is, as I said, I have to live by faith. And, you know, here, think about something, too. This is a whole other sermon. I'm not going to get into it, but we got a few minutes left. But... Think about, of all the things we have to believe, the most incredible thing we have to believe is in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Okay? I said earlier, you know, without that, our religion means nothing. Okay? I mean, Jesus could come, give me a nice moral system and all that, turn the other cheek, that's fine. I need a lot more than that. I need the promise of eternal life. I need my body 
resurrected because it's aging. It's aging, you know. It's like I'm. It's well, I'm not gonna let me get there and start griping about being in the fifties. You don't wanna. But now you think about it. Think about how we have to believe that millions and millions of people, billions of people, some who have been dead for centuries, and are going to be raised out of the ground. I mean, that's a pretty wild leap of faith. I mean, if you to believe that, you know, to believe that, I mean, and yet without it, we have nothing. We have nothing. So it's almost like from the start, God is asking us to stretch our faith and believe in something really, really, something that logic and reason and science and experience. I mean, what, what logical reason do we have? What reason do we ever have to have to believe in that? Science, logic, reason, experience, nothing points to that at all. And yet we have to believe and believe in that because without it, everything means nothing. It's all fake. And then what I tell people is I had a friend of mine came up to me to church one day and he was griping about all his love life woes. And I said, John, if you can believe, if you can believe that at the end of time, God is going to resurrect all the dead. If you can believe in that, can't you trust God for whatever, whatever woes you got now? You see what I'm saying? Whatever woes you got now, okay. But if you're going to believe God for that, and you have to, you have to believe him for that. Because if you don't believe that, it's all a joke. It's all meaningless. It's all utterly, utterly meaningless. So if you could trust God for that, you can trust them with your love life woes. Now, that's all very good, very logical and rational. And you go through a trial. I went through some heavy thing about a month ago, you know, uh, and I had it all in my head. I had it all worked out logically and rationally. But, you know, emotionally, I was a basket case. You know, I had, I mean, every sermon I ever preached to everybody else about everything, I was preaching to myself and wasn't as easy, but I had to tell myself, well, Cliff, you can trust God at the end of time to resurrect the dead. You can trust him with, you know, whatever you're dealing with now. So the point is, that is, you know, I guess, and, and, and the bottom line that I'm saying is, we have to trust God on that. We could trust him on just about any other struggle, anything else we're going to have. And the fact is, though, in the resurrection of Jesus, that's the hope, that's what Paul says in our resurrection. And our resurrection, and as I said, if you put the evidence together, you put the historical evidence together, you put the biblical evidence together, and nothing else really makes sense. Nothing else really. Try, I mean, try to come up, try to come up with some other way to explain what the gospel writers wrote. Try to come up with a rational, logical way to explain what the gospel, why these people would tell this story, suffer persecution for decades and decades after ostracism and everything, for a resurrected Messiah that nobody believed at the time would happen. Why would they go through all that and on and on and on if it didn't 
happen. So the point is, there's a lot of very good reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and that's where we have the hope of our resurrection, without which our religion means nothing. Okay, anyway, we got, it ends a quarter of? All right, well, look, we got some time. This is, it. this is it for today. You got any questions on anything we talked about? Okay, go ahead, speak loud. By definition, and I'm not sure how you would define it, can there ever really be such a thing as blind faith? By definition, can there ever be anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, well, it depends what you have. You know, blind, you're just talking about the modifier blind on faith. This faith, it's, oh, I think you could have blind faith. I mean, I think of, I mean, well, I don't want to insult anybody, but man, if you're a Mormon, man, that's, you know, I mean, some of the nonsense that people believe. But most people, though, have some evidence. See, this gets too into the whole thing in science. I'd love to get into the stuff on science because that's my real interest. I mean, you could have pretty much a lot of evidence for just about anything you want to believe. So, how the, you know, so, but in the end, though, you have to have faith, but I'm saying in Christianity, my faith is not blind. My faith is not blind. I've got a lot of good, and especially, you know, the, if you really do think about it, I was in Northern Ireland a couple weeks ago, and I preached to a group of people. And a lot of them were not Adventists, and I was dealing with the arguments for the existence of God. And I'm convinced in the end, logical and ra for those who believe in God, Logic and ration, rationality are much more on the side of those of us who believe in God than if you don't believe in God. I think, you know, I mean, you can't prove it, but I think if you were to really sit there and do it logically and rationally, the logic and ration work much more on the side of those of us who believe in God. But it's not foolproof. Nothing I believe is foolproof. There's, I mean, again, maybe it's the philosophy I read, but there's nothing that I, I have absolute can know absolute certainty. You know, how do I, you know, how do I know I'm even me? You know, how do I, you know, there's a guy out there, guy who knew a theory, he's a, prof a professor, and he came up with the theory that the universe, we are all just computer, ma, we're all just computer generated. There's some alien beings out there that just created the, the universe as a big computer model. Okay, but and that's and I read the paper that he wrote, and man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he had some powerful logical arguments for it. I'm, I'm serious, I'm serious. You got the you know, you could say, Wow, there that makes some sense. I mean, obviously, I rejected it, I, and, and it's pure speculation, but see, it all gets into it, all gets into this area, it's called epistemology, and it's a fancy philosophical term that means. When you say you, when I say I know that Jesus died for my sins, when I say I know I'm in St. Louis, oh no, this isn't St. Louis, well, this is Louisville. Yeah, all right. I know, see, I know, yeah, yeah, you can be very easily mistaken. You know, I know two plus two equals four. I know Jesus died for my sins. I know I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm using the word no. I'm using the word no. The same word, but I'm using it in three radically, radically different ways. So, sure. So, but, you know, yeah, I suppose you could find reasons to believe just about anything. 
You know, but as I said, I believe I, as, a, as a Christian, as I said, I've gone through this a thousand times, and in my experience, the only logical, the most sensible thing after everything that's happening, everything I have read and so on, is belief in the Bible, belief in Jesus, and belief in, you know, the Adventist message. I mean, it just, the pieces fit together. In fact, what's funny, I wrote one of my columns once years ago. I sometimes, you know, I've been in the church 30 years, and it's, you know, I understand sometimes you talk about losing your first love. And I remember when I first became a believer, when I first became a believer, and I first got the prophecies about American prophecy, you know, you can't study American prophecy without studying with the role of Rome, okay? And this was early 1979, 1980, and I first got these Bible studies, and I was so excited, and I, I was witnessing to the, you know, the, you know, to the dog, you know? And I still remember going out, it was during the presidential campaign, and I was going out telling, I wanted to tell people that Teddy Kennedy was going to be the next president, and I could prove from the Bible that Teddy Kennedy was going to be the next president. Well, because the Catholic-Protestant link with America and America in Rome and so on, and all the Adventists were pulling their hair out of their head. What are they going to do with this guy? I mean, they were thrilled about my zeal. They were thrilled about my zeal, but there wasn't a lot of knowledge at the time. And sometimes I thought, I mean, look, I have more than enough light to be saved. Okay, I've had more than enough light to be saved. Sometimes I wish I could trade some of that light for some of the fire. You know, we've been here too long. We've been here too long. We've been here way too long, and the church is suffering. We're suffering from being here too long, and the longer we're here, it's kind of ironic. I've, I, my wife and I have talked about this. Every day brings us one day closer to the second coming of Jesus. And then yet every day you're here, it just gets a little easier to get, you get more invested in the world. You know, when I first became an Adventist, everything I owned, everything I owned, I, could, I had a 73 Plymouth Valiant, and I had torn the back seat out of the Valiant and laid a board in it so I could sleep in it. And everything in the world I owned, I had in that Plymouth Valiant, you know, when I first joined, you know, became an Adventist. So, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of stake in things. But, you know, 30 years later, you know, I got my mortgage, I got my retirement, you know, you know. It's like, you know, with C.S. Lewis, as I said, when Lewis is good, he's good. When he's bad, he's bad. He had a line in screw tape letters that haunted me, and that's haunted me ever since because it's so true, because I've experienced Screw tape says to the, the junior demon, he says, a younger man is much more willing to die for his faith than a middle-aged man. And then I thought about it, I thought about it, wow. I mean, in those early days, I, I, I wanted to get burned at the stake. You know, in those early days. Uh, I, I, I'm not really all that eager now to do that, you know, do that. So there, there's this dichotomy. The longer each day brings us closer to Jesus, and yet it's that much easier to get caught in the world. And my wife and I, we talk about that sometimes. And I don't think, you know, you look back, I got two teenagers now. You, know, you look back, oh, they're 20. And, 
And I guess the one thing, as I said, I don't think my kids live with the sense of urgency about the second coming of Jesus. Because I said, where are they going to get it from? They didn't get it from me. You know, I mean, without the second coming, everything means nothing. Okay? But the sense of urgency, but see, I've known, and here's the thing too, I came in, I knew people, Jesus is coming any day, it's going to be months, 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 and they had this zeal and this fire, and that was 30 years ago, and they snapped, and they're out of the church completely. They're out of the church completely. So how do you somehow find this balance? How do you find this balance? As I get older, and at the same time, it gets easier because my mortality so you're young, you think you're going to live forever. You get older, you get older, and the body parts just start going, you know, and the, uh, the trips to the doctor and all that, and the numbers are different. You come a little bit more, fa so and that's one good thing about it, you know, one good thing about getting older, because you, you realize more, the next, you know, the second coming, without it, there's nothing. You know, without it, there's nothing. So in that sense, the older you get to realize how meaningless this life really is without the hope and promise that we have at the, at the second coming, you know. So, and as I said, and we've got very good reasons for believing it. What's the time? We've got a few more minutes. Any more questions? All right, go ahead. Um, we as Seventh-day Adventists, we usually say we can't wait for Jesus to come, but we don't see that the work is not done. And... Uh, God has a bigger, bigger picture than for Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists, and uh, it's just killing me to see so many people are ignorant of the message of Jesus, and then we keep saying that be ready, we want to go home. Yeah. And we don't even care about those who don't Yeah, Jesus. I know. Well, we have to believe that in the end, ultimately. As I said earlier, the only thing we're going to plot along, we're going to plot along as we're doing... It's going to be the Sabbath Sunday issue, whenever it comes, however it comes. Then, you know, Ellen White says too in Great Controversy, the three angels' message will be given a force and a power that hitherto it hasn't had. And that, that's, I, you know, maybe it's the cynical side of me. Maybe it's the cynical side of me. And as I said, we need to do what we need to do. We need to preach. We need to, you know, tell everyone we can. We need to get it, spread it. But in the end, I have a feeling the Sunday laws or Sabbath Sunday persecution, however it's going to take place, that'll give this an impetus and a power that at this point is lacking. Okay, anything else? Okay, go ahead. I think that God says that every person on earth is going to have a That's, that's what he's waiting for. So I think our job as Christians, or as Adventists, is to go out and give people more than that one chance. Yeah. It's a big challenge, though. But, you know, it's funny. They say anywhere you go in the world, you find three things. Roman Catholic, Seventh-day Adventist, and Coca-Cola. And, I, you know, and it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, Adventists are in more countries of the world than any other Protestant denomination, which I think is very, very interesting considering the first angel's message. Now, our presence in some places where, you know, is hardly overwhelming, but the fact that we're there is, you know, is, is, very, is amazing, you know, is amazing the way God has used the movement. But as I said, we've been here too long. 
I think that's the problem. We've just been here too long, and uh, I don't have the solution to it. Okay, go ahead. Last one. We were talking about running that answer. You know, every second, basically, two people are dying. Every second? Yeah. Every second. Yeah. Four are being born. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we keep doing things the way we're doing them, we're going to get the same results. You know what the definition for insanity is. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, ultimately in the end, I mean, in the end, n nothing, this, as we said when we did our thing on Daniel 2, we have so much reasons to believe in the second coming. It's going to come. It's going to come. And uh, as humans, it's, I guess it's our concept of time. You know, our concept of time, it seems like a long time for us. But when you're dealing with God and you're dealing with thousands of years, you know, people said, well, I, I said, if God can delay 150-some years after 1844, we could be here another 200 years. You know, it's a, not a pleasant thought. But, uh, but I guess in the end, what I always tell myself the second coming, phenomenally, for me personally, in terms of my own experience, is no is not more than a second after my death. Okay, you look at it that way, you die, the next thing you know is the second coming of Jesus. That's ultimately how quick the second coming is. And since we're all, all sort of on a precipice, you never know when death could come. If you live it, look at it that way, then the second coming is nearer than we first believed, if you look at it that way. Well, anyway, that is the... That is the time. Let's pray. we got two more tomorrow. and uh, Appreciate you coming. Father, again, I just thank you for all the reasons we have for our faith, for all the reasons. And Lord, there are always questions. There's always room for doubt. There's with everything we believe, secular or sacred. But I'm very thankful for the evidence that we have and for the fact that we don't have to believe blindly. We still have to believe by faith. We still have to move ahead without fully understanding things. But you have given us so much light, so much truth, so many reasons to believe. Help us through your grace to cling to those beliefs, to cling to what we know, and to, to live up to the light that we have, and to trust you when things just don't go the way we like or understand because there's so much of that out there, but we have the revelation of you on the cross, and that shows us what you're like. And we cling to that. We can have hope no matter what. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.